The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Most of us have read about how Civil War regiments were raised, how inspirational orators persuaded young men to volunteer for service in companies, often led by those same orators, and how officers and men alike had to teach themselves the unfamiliar craft of soldiering. We've read about it, but today we'll hear from someone who's actually done it. Gregory Irwin, who organized and led a company of volunteers to portray Union soldiers in the movie Glory, also spent his spare time writing about American military history, including his first book uh, some decades ago on General Custer's Civil War career. We'll talk about all this and more today with Greg Irwin on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Do you know that digestive problems, ADHD, and chronic pain can be treated naturally? In fact, most health problems can be treated using integrative and alternative medicine. Find out about cancer prevention and managing diabetes. Learn how to use common herbs and spices to treat a variety of conditions. For the sake of your good health, tune in to Natural Solutions with your host, Dr. Sean Palmer. Broadcasting live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina but not speaking for the university or the university system or the state of North Carolina or its tight-fisted state legislature that just uh, yesterday passed a budget that will cut us still further in our attempts to educate the youth of America. No, not speaking for any of those, just for myself. Uh, Still using a phone. They have not taken our phones away, but uh, other than that, uh, it's all on my own hook, and I know my guest will likewise speak for himself today, as always, on Civil War Talk Radio. It's uh, summertime, or feels like summer, officially not quite summer yet, June of 2011, and we're getting near the end of our season. Uh, Next week, Robert Hunt will be with us to talk about the Army of the Cumberland, the Army of the Ohio, as it was originally called in its early days, and how the veterans of that organization uh, remembered the war and thought about their experiences and uh, translated them into their future lives. And, and we'll talk about what those veterans did uh, in the war as well, I'm sure. And on uh, June 17th, the following uh, Friday, we'll have J. 
James Martin, uh, who will also be talking about veterans of the Civil War. His new book is on that subject. And that will bring us uh, to the close of what I think is the eighth season, seventh or eighth. I've lost track of Civil War Talk Radio. We'll take our summer hiatus and go out scouring the country for more people to uh, uh, to hear about, uh, for us to hear from on the show. So your suggestions, as always, are welcome. If you have somebody you think would be a interesting to hear from in Civil War Talk Radio, don't be shy about sending a, a recommendation here. Uh, during the summer, if you happen to be up around Portland, Maine, on, uh, let's look at the date here, sometime in August, looks like August 10th, uh, I have to look up my own calendar, pardon me while we look for this, um, well, we'll never find it now. Um, Coming up this summer, sometime at the Peaks Island, uh, Maine, an island in the harbor of Portland that is a separate community with all the issues that secession uh, involves uh, uh, when you're separated like that, is going to be having uh, some talks on Civil War matters, and I'll be addressing them. Uh, um, I'll give you the right date here. Let's even look it up on the modern calendar the university gives us. On August 10th. Wednesday, August 10th, speaking to the uh, fifth main uh, organization, the, the uh, fifth main uh, Civil War Roundtable, what are they called? It just says the fifth main regiment museum. That's who we're speaking with. The fifth main regiment museum and uh, looking forward to doing that. So if you're in that part of the country, drop by and we'll talk Civil War that day. Well, otherwise, uh, we, we wait here with bated breath for the remaining shoes to drop as the legislature continues to trim our resources. Civil War Talk Radio draws no state resources, so we'll be with you next year for sure, one way or another. Uh, you can help fund the book purchases uh, by buying, uh, by contributing to uh, Civil War Talk Radio. Send uh, $20 or more through PayPal to civilwartr at aol.com. And I'll be happy to send you a copy of All for the Regiment, the Army of the Ohio, 1861-62, or Did Lincoln Own Slaves, and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln. And you can also buy any uh, book you hear about on the show, uh, Today's Guests, or the books of anyone, if you click through the impedimentsofwar.org website, the Civil War Talk Radio Companion website, then uh, a fraction of, uh, click through that on your way to Amazon and a fraction of the purchase price of whatever you buy goes to that website. Your donations also help support uh, uh, Civil War Talk Radio's companion site, impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney does a fine job every week keeping that up to date and letting you know who's going to be on the show next. So... That's what's going on ahead. In the recent past, this past week, uh, the History Channel, I think it's now just called History, um, it may actually ought to be called just Channel because I don't see what Ice Road Truckers has to do with history. But uh, anyway, History uh, presented a, uh, a much uh, anticipated new show. I don't, I guess you wouldn't call it a documentary. There were no documents involved that I could tell. Uh, but a historical presentation on the Battle of Gettysburg. A lot of people in the Civil War community were anticipating it. I'll be eager to ask uh, today's guest if he had a chance to see it. But I will 
upfront confess to the uh, Civil War talk radio audience that I fell asleep watching that show uh, somewhere between the end of the first day and uh, woke up in time for uh, Pickett's Charge reenacted by 24 people. Uh, not as impressive as the real thing, I'm guessing. Uh, I did manage to see the Geico commercial, which was, was certainly the best part of the show that I, at least the part I enjoyed the most. Uh, with the Civil War reenactors selling us car insurance. But beyond that, I thought uh, there were a lot of uh, issues. There were a lot of Civil War talk radio alumni uh, among the talking heads. Uh, Peter Carmichael was there. Uh, um, uh, who else was on? Uh, uh, it sleeps to mind, uh, but, but I know there were others. Um, uh, but it becomes uh, some some of the way they're edited becomes somewhat cliche, it seems to me, and the uh, attempt to make the fighting uh, resemble the the cinem cinematic language of, of Saving Private Ryan with the handheld camera and the narrow fields of view and the uh, uh, lack of organization. I'm not sure it was really true to the more uh, core more. more organized methods of fighting in the Civil War. People tended to march in formation, not go off randomly on their own. Uh, but maybe when you only have 24 people to film, it's, it's better that way. I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, enough uh, about that. Uh, uh, if, if you have a thought about that, feel free to send me an email and uh, uh, or, or comment on Facebook at the impedimentsofwar.org. Uh, uh, site there and, and let people know. But uh, we're here to find out not what I think, but what uh, our guest, uh, Gregory Irwin, uh, professor at University, Temple University, uh, thinks about all these things. Uh, so let's uh, bring him on. Uh, Dr. Irwin, are you there? I'm, I'm here. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining me on the show. Um, I, you and I have not had a chance to meet, but you were good enough to send a, a recommendation to one of my colleagues, uh, on behalf of one of my colleagues, Larry Babbitts, not too long ago. Yeah. So uh, we do have a mutual friend. Yes. And, uh, and Mike uh, Palmer, too, I believe. Uh, yes. Right. Uh, yeah, Mike is uh, also a good friend here, former chair of the department and just down the way. I'm reading his book this, this very day about the the German wars, which... Starts with 1864, uh, the, the war with Denmark. So I guess it fits in the Civil War talk radio era. But uh, East, East Carolina is fortunate to have so many talented military historians. On it's, staff. It's, we we are. I, 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 we we have a two course sequence in American military history alone, uh, plus war and society courses and uh, other courses on the Revolution, Civil War, World War Two. Uh, John Tilley, who's expert in uh, Coast Guard and a wonderful model builder is, is, uh, works for us here. Uh, not every university has that. I, does Temple have a sympathy for military history? Oh, yeah. We, we, we have a strong tradition. Russell Wigley uh, got that established. He, he taught here from 1962 up until he recommended that they hire me in ah. 1999. And, and we have a close affiliation with the Army War College. A number of our Ph.D. students have been uh, senior officers or retired officers from that institution, and um, many of them go back to, to teach there or other advanced uh, schools in the American military. So we, uh, we have a temple mafia all over the place, as we like to, like to say. Yeah. Well, very, that's right. Russell Wigley was, was Mike Palmer's advisor, as I right. recall. He, he's told us some very interesting stories uh, uh, about that. So um, 
how did you get interested in military history to begin with? Well, I grew up, uh, I was a kid during the Civil War centennial. And um, my parents bought me uh, one of those Marks uh, uh, oh. play sets and uh, <laughs> uh, Reproduction Sharps carbine and uh, Army Colt revolver. And, I mean, that was just the center of my, my fantasy world, uh, you know, playing soldier, playing with soldiers. And I never outgrew it. So <laughs> I'm looking at a Confederate cavalryman on my desk right here from the Centennial Marks mm-hmm. Blue and Gray set. Uh, yes, that... I, I would guess a fair number of listeners to the show have that recollection. Between that and the uh, the bird's eye maps in the Bruce Catton uh, Centennial series, do you remember that, those? Oh, I remember uh, poring over uh, the, the the kids' version of that. And then yes, exactly. Uh, when I was, I think, at the end of my grade school uh, uh, career, my parents bought me the the full American Heritage uh, Civil War history, and I was, you know, I just. Every day, I was just pouring over the pictures and those and those maps. Yes, one, wonderful stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, you you wrote about uh, George Armstrong Custer's Civil War career, and I wanted to talk about that later uh, on, if we could. Was that your dissertation? That was my master's thesis. Okay. Uh, my uh, advisor, I was doing pulp magazine articles, and he said, "Write it, write it like a book." And uh, I don't think he expected me to bring him a 300-page <laughs> master's thesis, but bless his heart, he read through it. And uh, eventually I was able to find a, a publisher that was foolish enough to uh, to bring it out. So. Well, well, that, uh, well, well you, I said I want to do that later because I, I teased people in the opening, and I want to get to this. Um, you appeared in an article in North and South Magazine uh, a while back describing the experience of of working on the movie Glory. Uh, Let me open that by by asking if you watched the Gettysburg show this past week. I caught the Pickett's Charge sequence when it was repeated last night, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Any thoughts? What was your reaction? You know, it, uh, as you say, the History Channel kind of lost interest in really doing history programming around 2006, and it's picked up on Ice Road Truckers and really fat pawnbrokers and all kinds of other kind of rednecky adventure mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, shows that, um, as I say, kind of betray its its original mandate. The Gettysburg, uh, what I saw of it, you know, it, it just struck me as kind of war porn. Uh, let's just describe the, the technology of killing and show the different ways people got torn apart in different parts of this battlefield. Uh, it reminded you of Saving Private Ryan. It reminded me of kind of a 300, um, uh, which has had a big influence on what little history the History Channel's shown. I mean, after 300 was a hit uh, about the, the Spartans at Thermopylae, mm-hmm. they did all these ancient history battles, again, with blood flying anytime anybody got struck with whatever kind of weapon. And this just came across to me as, as the same kind of thing. I mean, they think this is what 14 to 25-year-olds, which is their favorite demographic, wants to see. Uh, but you know, basic cable is is chasing that demographic with all kinds of trash, whether it be uh, Jersey Shore or you know all these crazy realities. I, I wonder if there are that many impetuous, shallow people out there to make this programming pay. Uh, you would well, think somewhere there would be you know maybe an island for people who'd like things uh, uh, history told a little bit more intelligently. Uh, uh, well, one would hope for that. Yeah, of course, your show, uh, the survival of your show uh, testifies to that, but it's 
Yeah, I, I just think that there. But, but no money changes hands here. That's well, that's still, key. but but yeah. I, I I mentioned I was going to be on uh, on Facebook, and I got responses from lots of people saying, "Oh, I listen to it all the time," or "I I listen to the the podcasts," or you know the uh, the, the uh-huh. recorded version. Um, you know, it reminds me of, of, of when Ken Burns's The Civil War came out, and the media mm-hmm. was saying, "Oh, this has revived interest in the Civil War," and maybe it did, but I think. In effect, it, it discovered that there already was a big audience of people who were fairly serious about history and would watch it if it was presented well. And I wish to gosh somebody would create a network that would, uh, you know, uh, speak to those kind of people. As far as basic cable is concerned, the only thing that I think is worth watching is Turner Classic Movies. The rest of it's just kind of gone to the dogs. Well, I think there, there's... A lot to be said for that. You really don't get the the in-depth approach. Uh, One thing the Gettysburg Show did, uh, at least before, again, I I drifted off uh, somewhere on the evening of the first day of the battle, but they did at the beginning at least have the talking heads address the degree to which slavery was uh, a cause of the war. And in that sense, they're tracking what the Park Service has done uh, to put things in context. And that contrasted so strongly with what you very ably described as, as the war porn, the, the focus on the detail of, of, of the technology and the bloodshed. I mean, you don't I'm not hide, quite sure what they were doing. You don't want to hide the fact that war is brutal, but to a certain extent I think that they just, I mean, they, they just become obsessed with that. But I'm glad to hear that they, that they did try to put the war in context. Uh, I didn't see the beginning of the show, so I'm giving you a, a semi-informed opinion. <laughs> Well, I, I missed the middle, so if we can get to someone who's, who saw the other part, we'll all, all be together here. Uh, well, that, that uh, so there's something to sort of put off anybody, actually. If, if you if you're just hardcore uh, interested in the war, you don't want to hear about the context, and yeah. if you have a, a more cosmopolitan interest, then, then you know one close-up slow-motion bullet wound every ten seconds is a little more than you need. Mm-hmm. Um, so interesting. Well, one example of, of reaching a popular audience through a popular medium certainly was uh, the movie Glory. Uh, how did you get involved in that? Well, when they were going to make it, they wanted to uh, make use of reenactors. Uh, the problem was that, though, it was that this is a film about a uh, the most famous black regiment in the Union Army, the 54th Massachusetts. And when the film was made in 1988, 1989, there weren't that many black reenactors around. So they put a call out to the living history uh, community asking white reenactors to recruit uh, African Americans. And they, they struck a deal with C&D Jarnigan. I think you could equip a, uh, a Union infantryman for $600, which was including the, the weapon, which is you know, not bad yeah. at that point in time. And I was teaching uh, at the University of Central Arkansas, uh, just outside Little Rock, and I thought it might be a nice PR thing if a southern university sent a contingent of its students to work on the film as extras. Uh, so I got permission from my uh, superiors uh, to raise money uh, to try and equip as many of our students as I could. And um, some months out from uh, the uh, the filming date, uh, I began uh, training those guys who were interested. And the idea, my, my, the tension was I was hoping I could raise enough money to uh, equip the guys who were training. Uh, I came close. I didn't quite do it, do it all, but uh, we were able to take 13 of our students out to work work on the movie. 
so I mean that really does parallel what what an actual recruiter would have done in 1861 in terms of uh, the state's going to pay for this if you can get some bodies together. Yeah, and and there was a kind of a bounty system because the the uh, production company was willing to pay fifty dollars a day. Uh, for equipped extras for reenactors, and and this was going to be shot over our, our spring break. So for the students, uh, everything kind of came together, and it was an opportunity to do something unusual to be in a movie. Every red-blooded American wants to be in a movie, and to do it uh, at a time uh, when they could earn some money. Uh, so um, we were just uh, the planets seemed to have aligned for us, uh, <laughs> and we were able to make a go of it. Well, well, we'll hear more about this in a minute, what happened when uh, when they got to the, the set. Uh, we're talking today with uh, Gregory Irwin, professor at Temple University and one-time uh, Civil War recruiter. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We'll be right back with more Civil War Talk Radio. You don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you're looking for answers and solutions, you don't have to look to expensive treatments, consultations, and methods. All you have to do is listen to your connections. Every week, the Dr. Melanie Show will teach you how to do just that. Dr. Melanie Barton will share her gifts and talents and teach you to do the same. And in doing so, find the solutions to the issues in your life that you truly need. You'll learn about holistic and practical health in six key areas. Discover the Dr. Melanie Show, Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. If you are dealing with chronic illness or a disability, at times you can feel lost with nowhere to turn. It doesn't have to be this way at all. You can become an active participant with your doctor in the healing process. Tune in to A Healthy Way to Be Sick with host Mark Lerner. Mark has developed techniques to make your healing a partnership. Each weekly show will cover four main topics and how you can take steps and hear from experts that know the value of patient participation. Tune in every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and talking today with Gregory Irwin. He's the author of Custer Victorious, among numerous other books. Uh, today we've been talking about his early experience as a uh, as appearing in the movie Glory as a Union uh, officer responsible for rounding up. Uh, not in the movie, but in real life, responsible for rounding up uh, some of the extras who appeared uh, in that film as American soldiers, volunteers in the 54th Massachusetts Regiment. Uh, now, Greg, you said these uh, you had about 13 students from uh, your university in Arkansas who, who joined you for this uh, yes. experience. Yes. And one thing, uh, as I recall reading uh, your description of what happened on the set, there was a parallel. Uh, you know, in 1864, uh, as, as the listeners know, the 
uh, Union Army begins to absorb draftees and uh, you know conscripts and bounty men, uh, and there's a sort of culture clash with the original, uh, more educated and willing volunteers of '62. And I gather there was some kind of culture clash among the extras on the set as well. Oh, there were there were several. Uh, one was uh, the um, production company had hoped to recruit 200 reenactors, uh, but uh, only a, they were only able to find about 100 people. Um, and these included not only uh, my students and students from Ohio State, but about 50 guys from the Washington D.C. area who bought their own their own gear. Uh, uh, and they needed 200 because they felt with camera angles they could make it look like 600, which was the number of men the 54th Massachusetts took into the assault on Fort Wagner on July 18, 1863 in Charleston Harbor. So they hired 100 street people from Savannah, Georgia. So my, my students uh, from rural and middle-class urban Arkansas got to spend time with the urban underclass, which was very interesting. Also, uh, when we were getting started uh, shooting, uh, three vans from uh, the southwest uh, pulled onto the set and outpiled 24 African Americans who had been recruited by a company that specialized in supplying extras to Hollywood productions. This company had struck a deal with uh, a judge uh, to sentence first-time offenders to work on the movie, and uh, they were assigned to my company. So here I am responsible for the uh, the physical and moral well-being of my 13 students. Uh, and then I've got these guys added on who have no training. When they arrived on set, there weren't even buttons sewed on to, under their, their uniform jackets, their fatigue blouses. And in between takes, uh, I mean, we had to find out what positions uh, the troops would be carrying their weapons. And I'd have to teach them, you know, certain segments of the manual of arms. Uh, so that they could execute those movements uh, properly or hold the weapons properly. And most of them were pretty good guys, you know, uh, busted for possessing a small amount of drugs and things like that. There are a couple um, not-so-nice guys in the group. Most of them were pretty good guys, and, and they did what, what they were told. But still, you know, it was, it was just an unexpected experience. Wow. So that, and, and, of course, nobody uh, you know, knew the manual of arms going into this. Everybody had to be trained. Right. And with my students, we'd been working for months, uh, twice a week, uh, a couple hours each day. And by reenactor standards, they were good. Uh, they got a lot of compliments. And, and, um, but, you know, then to have half your company, <laughs> to have you know, people who didn't know one end of the weapon from from another, I mean, and uh, as I say, with a hundred street people, and it got kind of hairy sometimes on the set. When we shot uh, the attack on Fort Wagner, there's a scene where the troops, the 54th, cross, cross a moat, and they're clustered at the at the base of of of, of the uh, the South Curtain there, and uh, the, the the director had them do a little firefight. The uh, Confederates firing down, and the 54th firing up. Uh, when we crossed that moat, the different units were jumbled up, the reenactor units and the uh, the street people uh, companies. And production people just passed through indiscriminately, um, handing out uh, blank cartridges. And, and the first time we shot that firefight, uh, after the smoke cleared, there were about three rammers sticking oh. out of the wall a few feet below the Johnny Rebs, who had a interesting reaction to that. But some of these guys didn't realize you're supposed to take the rammer out, at least I hope <laughs> was a sin of omission. Uh, so after that, uh, the reenactor officers had, had to identify which guys knew how to load and fire the weapons without actually killing anybody, and the others had to hand back their ammunition. 
Wow. What a what an experience. But but yeah. so nobody got killed, fortunately. Uh yeah. no. No nobody got killed. One one of the street people supposedly uh was murdered in, in nearby Brunswick, Georgia. Uh, so the rumor was that it was a, a drug deal gone bad, but that was offset. And one Confederate reactor a reenactor was caught uh selling cocaine. It was the late eighties, but but those were the most uh most serious law enforcement problems that we had. Wow, and and the resultant product, the movie, really is, uh, uh, you know, still holds up very well as a good. It turned out uh, a lot better than I thought it would. When you're on the set, you see everything that's going wrong. You see, mm-hmm. you don't see what the camera sees, you know. And uh, I came away from that experience having a, a lot more respect for for the art of the editor and the art of the director. I could see why uh, a lot of actors want to become directors because they're the people who really make the movie. Um, I mean, it's it's a team effort, of course, but uh, you know, if, if the director doesn't uh, go in with a, with a tight vision and and get the footage that he needs, and if he doesn't have good people, cinematographers, etc., helping him, then it, it's going to show in the in the end result. And and uh, Gloria, Gloria, you know, made the grade, and uh, thank goodness for that. I, I guess I mean a huge amount of what gets filmed doesn't end up in the final uh, vision that that. that shows up in theaters. Yeah, all my best close-ups never made it. I don't know. They kept uh, focusing on, on Matthew Broderick and Denzel Washington and these other guys. <laughs> and it left you, I don't know what they were thinking there. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, together. you know, a white guy with a few hundred black guys, I'll stick right out. But somehow, you know, they just kept focusing on the actors. So that's, uh, that's, that's, that's do, you, do you ever actually see yourself in the movie? Uh, here or there. Uh, the closest view you get of part of me is when uh, Colonel Shaw, Matthew Broderick, yells charge. Mm-hmm. If you look over his shoulder, you'll see an arm waving a cap, and that's me urging on my company. <laughs> you have to take my word for it that that's wow. my company was the closest to the ocean. Very. So. so you are famous. That's, that's uh, well, I, in my own mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in terms of living history, um, so you must have been involved in living history before uh, before that to, to be able yeah, to do I that. Got in, I got involved in reenacting as a college student during the American Revolution bicentennial, and... Uh, uh, participate in re- Revy War reenactments from seven, 1974 to 1981, but then I began my teaching career in Dodd City, Kansas, uh, uh, St. Mary of the Plains College, which is no longer with us, and there wasn't much call for Revolutionary War reenactors out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I moved to Arkansas two years later, and again, there wasn't much interest in the Revolution there, so I got involved in the Civil War, and, and uh, that's how I was in a position to, to help out with the, with the, the glory uh, the glory shoot, but at Temple, you're you're back in the heart of the revolution. Yeah. yeah. Do you still reenact? I'm. Uh, yeah. I'm, I belong to the Royal Welsh Fusiliers in America. Now I'm I'm in my mid fifties, so I don't go out as often to sleep on the ground for a weekend as I used to. But every once in a while, I, it's it's nice to get out of the ivory tower once in a while, and I think uh, it's it's uh, refreshing for a liberal academic to spend uh, time with uh, with gun owners. <laughs> And people who see America and the world through a uh, uh, different uh, perspective than he does. It's just a good reality check. Well, that, that anticipates what I was going to ask, which is there, there is this gulf in general between how uh, academics look at history and how the people who watch the History Channel, uh, as a rule, look at history and, and, and the kind of things we write and that other people read. Uh, and, and I guess you'd encountered that firsthand in, in the reenactor world. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, uh, we, uh, there are a lot of people who, who turn to history for entertainment, which is fine. I mean, it's how I got interested in it in the first place. 
And there are other people who, you know, it's a form of ancestor worship. And, and uh, as professional historians, we like to think that we draw a uh, more objective meaning out of what happened in the past and why it's important. But, you know, there are a lot of savvy people uh, out there in the reenactment community, in the Civil War community as a whole, and, and they read all sorts of things. And uh, thank goodness for it, because I think uh, we'd all be poorer uh, uh, financially in other ways if, 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 uh, if this wasn't the case. Um, you know, military history and Civil War history enjoy a wider readership than other forms of the discipline, which I think are just as valid and just as interesting and just as important. But we've got the audience there, and uh, I think if, if we can cast our message in a way that will catch the eye of the audience, then we can, you know, we can sell serious history, if we want to call it that, uh, uh, along, along with, with other stuff that's just, as I say, done for entertainment value. There's no reason why serious history can't be or uh, can't be entertaining, uh, can't be interesting. Um, well, that, that's the trick, isn't it, to, to, yeah. to write as well as, as uh, is needed to, to hold the audience's interest. Did, I think of my own experience, not so much reenacting, but just even hiking uh, occasionally, uh, being shown how to shoot uh, a musket. Do you think you've gained insights that have affected your writing from yeah, doing living history? Know, it's, it's, it's one thing to, to read a tactical treatise or a manual, but to actually try to go from uh, you know column into line while you're on the move by the right flank, by the front, by the left flank, uh, to execute uh, various maneuvers, how to break up a battalion so it can pass in order through a line of artillery and then go back into line of battle once you've, once you've done that. To, to actually experience how difficult it is. I mean, I ended up uh, at the summit of my reenacting career commanding a, a Union Infantry Battalion of about 220 guys uh, and, and trying to, to, to communicate, you know, to make sure everyone's hearing the orders and, and, and to make uh, uh, this unit act as one, um, even with people not trying to kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's that's a challenge, and it it just gives you it, it's no substitute for doing rigorous research, but I think it it gives you certain insights uh, as to some of the basic mechanics involved, and and you don't end up writing things about you know people doing you know you don't you don't imagine people can do impossible things once you've actually carried a uh, a musket and tried to do maybe five miles in a day as opposed to twenty five uh, that veteran troops could execute during the war. And, and I, I think that helps combat the the, uh, the Monday morning quarterback syndrome that, that a lot of people, uh, a lot of writers sometimes will have uh, when we critique generals for being incompetent. Uh, at least they they presumably came up uh, through the the ranks or were trained at West Point, and they know how to command a battalion and then a brigade and a division, and. But a lot, a lot of them didn't even have that prior experience. I mean, you're uh, in, in 1860. You're commanding maybe a company of cavalry somewhere mm-hmm. off uh, on the plains, and then less than a year later, you're commanding a battalion or a brigade. You've got to learn all all that stuff from scratch. And it gives me more sympathy for the people who didn't do well, and it fills me with even greater admiration for the people who picked it up quickly. Well, exactly, exactly. And so when we say, oh, you know, so-and-so was a terrible general, but, you know, at least he got 
people from point A to point B, and yeah. you know, he, he may not have done it at the right time or the right way. But or he was able to feed uh, eighty thousand people every day. That's, yeah, I mean, it just doesn't happen. Uh, uh, but with by snapping your fingers, somebody has to do the paperwork and learn how to to make the logistical system work. So it's yeah, yeah it's uh, it was it was a tough job for these guys. It still is, even with all the training and staff schools and 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 professionalization that we have in the military today. But I mean. You go from an army of thirteen to sixteen thousand men to more than seven hundred thousand in the war's first summer. The immensity of just trying to to manage that and keep it alive. Um, you know, it's it's you talk about your your eccentric headache. It, it is an astonishing uh, achievement on both sides to be able to to, to point those men in the right direction. Yeah. Then the. Uh, well, a good example, then, this is a good segue to uh, George Armstrong Custer, who uh, uh, is, is known to everyone uh, around the world, practically, uh, for one of the great uh, disasters for his own unit in, in American military history uh, after the war, but during the war was, uh, was remarkably successful. It's, yeah, it, it is amazing. I mean, we remember him for the last day of his life, about which we don't know all that much. Uh, because he didn't live to talk about it, and uh, uh, his opponents um, have, have a way had a way of remembering you know things that was uh, uh, clouded by their own culture, and the fact that you know when you're on a battle uh, field, you're not saying, "Well, where's the famous guy? I want to focus on him." You're intent on killing whoever's in front of you and not getting killed. Uh, but during the Civil War, I mean, everyone knows he graduated from West Point last in his class in, in 1861, and within two years he's a brigadier general. Uh, within a year or a little bit more than that, he's he's commanding a division, and he soon becomes a major, a major general. Um, the thing that struck me about about all that was how highly regarded he was by the officers and men he led during the Civil War. Uh, I've gone through dozens of letters and diaries, and then things that were written later, uh, memoirs and articles, and they're, they're just unanimous in, in saying that this guy you know, had, had, had uh, remarkable tactical instincts, uh, and he just seemed to, to bring out the best of the men who followed him. And this stands in stark contrast not only to um, the little bighorn, but, but you know, his la- the last ten years of his life, he was not that popular uh, with the regulars of, of his regiment, the 7th U.S. Cavalry. And um, it raises a lot of questions um, about uh, Custer, about the army of his day, and, uh, and also, also uh, the Civil War and uh, the generation of officers who rose to fame in, in that conflict, because a lot of them would, of course, remain in the army afterwards and pretty much dominate its command structure down into the Spanish-American War. Of course, one when they did that after the war, they they gave up those volunteer ranks that they had during the war, and you know Custer's uh, from being a major general goes back to being a lieutenant colonel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and compared to a lot of his peers, he does quite well. I mean, there were guys who were brigadiers who became captains, um, but uh, in some ways, I think you know, he succeeded too quickly. I mean, he leaves West Point, he, he commands, a, well, he's with a cavalry company for a matter of weeks or months, then he becomes a staff officer, and, and uh, he's on the staff of Phil Kearney, he gets on the staff of, of George McClellan, which really set him up because he was able to make a lot of valuable contacts when you're, you know, an aide to the, the commanding general of the Army of the Potomac. 
and, but then, you know, he, he gets brigade command. Uh, he leaves the staff of, of General Alfred Pleasanton, who was uh, in charge of the Cavalry Corps in June of 1863. So he doesn't get that kind of practical, everyday experience of commanding a company, of commanding a squadron, of commanding a regiment. Uh, you know, he just goes to the upper echelons, and he does quite well, but then he has to adjust to uh, regimental command after the war. And, and, you know, the only experience he really had in, in managing people was the training he got at West Point, where they, they teach you by punishing you. Oh, you know, your, your bed's not made right, two demerits. <laughs> your, your collar's crooked when you turn on parade, three demerits. And he did that with the 7th Cavalry. Well, your, your company looks sloppy, so I'm putting you under arrest for, for today. And uh, a lot of these volunteer officers who had been majors and colonels during the war didn't like being treated that way. I think Custer didn't understand that they found this humiliating. And uh, that, that, I think, contributed to a lot of the rifts in the 7th. I think some of it was regional. Um, Custer uh, served in the Eastern Theater, uh, where the Army of the Potomac uh, you know, was the biggest in, uh, army uh, the Union fielded, thought it was the most important, got the most press coverage, uh, but spent four years trying to cover 100 miles. Then you've got guys who fought in the West, who you know, marched across Arkansas, who, who marched across Mississippi, who marched across, across Georgia uh, with, uh, with Sherman and up into the Carolinas, and they feel we're, we're the ones who, 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 who really won the war, the Army of the Potomac kept Lee tied up, but we're the ones who gutted the Confederacy, and who is this Custer guy, you know, with all his ears and, 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 and thoughts of being superior to us because he got all this press coverage. So I think some of that uh, um, figured in, in, in uh, the uh, hard feelings that, that arose in that regiment's officer corps. And also I think Custer just was spoiled by success, too, uh, and, and had a hard time coping with not being uh, the fair-haired boy uh, of the Army and being exiled to the West. I think he really kind of cracked up his first year out there when he deserted his command. Uh, and it took him a while to kind of get his, uh, I guess, um, sea legs would be the wrong, the wrong analogy, but to, to start getting, getting a handle on how to deal with, with hostile Plains Indians. Well, we'll talk some more about the career of George Armstrong Custer during the Civil War and after. We're talking with Dr. Greg Irwin, author of Custer Victorious. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and we'll be back with more Civil War Talk Radio. World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Holistic healing has been around for over 5,000 years. The basic concept is that of treating the whole person and encouraging a healthy way of living in harmony with nature and the core self. Every week, take some time out for Holistic Healing Moment with host Elizabeth Amy. What is out there, and how does it help on the transformational path of healing body, mind, and spirit? No matter where you are on your path, there will be a topic that will speak just to you. Tune in to Holistic Healing Moment, Mondays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. 
Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I'm talking today with Gregory Irwin, Temple University, author of Custer Victorious and other books on American military history. We've been talking today about his career as a wrangler of extras, or uh, more uh, colloquially, a a recruiter and uh, leader of uh, volunteer uh, soldiers for the movie Glory in 1988 or 89, it would have been. Uh, And uh, then the last segment we talked a bit about the wartime and post-war career of, of George Armstrong Custer, the youngest general in the Union Army, uh, of course famous for uh, the fate he met at the Little Bighorn uh, in 1876, but uh, during the war, a very successful leader of cavalry in the Army of the Potomac. Uh, and Greg, you suggested one reason why Custer didn't do so well after the war was his uh, spoiled by success. Uh, things went too well for him during the war. Uh, he commanded uh, he was a staff officer, then commanded a regiment, eventually a, a brigade. Uh, uh, he, he skips regimental command. He goes from uh, uh, as a, uh, a Pleasanton staff uh, directly mm-hmm. to command of the Michigan Cavalry Brigade. He was trying to get command of the 5th Michigan Cavalry, uh, but um, he was a Democrat, and the Republican governor gave that to a Republican lawyer and, and businessman named Russell Alger, who later became Se- McKinley's Secretary of War during the Spanish-American War. Uh, but um, a little later, uh, because brigades are under federal authority, uh, right after uh, Hooker was removed from uh, command of the of the Army of the Potomac, uh, Pleasanton got George Gordon Meade to give give Custer the Michigan Brigade. So Custer got the first Michigan uh, Cavalry and and the fifth, uh, the regiment that he had sought uh, its colonelcy, and then the sixth and seventh, and uh, with uh, those 2,400. Uh, troopers, he began his uh, he began to make his mark uh, uh, as a uh, as a cavalry commander. He'll be at Gettysburg, in fact, uh, on July 3rd. Um, I'd say the 29th was the day he got his star. So less than a week after he becomes a brigadier general, he's squaring off against uh, Jeb Stuart <laughs> with uh, a one of uh, three Union uh, brigades uh, that are guarding the right flank of the Army of the Potomac while Pickett is attacking uh, the center. Something that I've always wondered about, and uh, when Eric Wittenberg was on the show, I asked him about this. He's written about uh, the Sixth Michigan and uh, oh, yeah. about the Union Cavalry in general. Is very well versed in this. And in all the accounts I read, I still have a hard time visualizing cavalry in combat in the Civil War, particularly mounted combat. Did, did do you have the impression that? When Custer would say he led several charges that day, that they literally galloped through the enemy ranks and and, and fought saber to saber, or did you know, one side uh, run away? How did that work? Gettysburg is a good example. Uh, I mean, Custer uh, at the beginning of the fight, he uh, dismounted the Fifth Michigan Cavalry and sent it out as skirmishers. It was armed with uh, the new Spencer uh, seven-shot uh, uh, repeating rifle, not the carbine, but the rifle. Uh, and, and the 5th uh, shot away its ammunition quickly, and the Confederates began pressing it, so he, he led a mounted charge uh, with the 7th Michigan Cavalry, his junior regiment, and they went out in great style until they um, topped a, a little crest of ground and, and slammed into a fence <laughs> at the end of the charge. There were Confederates on the other side, and, 
and uh, Custer's uh, companies and squadrons were in disarray, and, and there was a little firefight, the rebels blazing away um, uh, from one side of the fence, and, and the Federals blazing away uh, uh, with their uh, pistols, and, and I think the 7th had Burnside carbines uh, from the other, and the 7th had to retire after it got mauled a bit. Uh, but Gettysburg did witness uh, a real rock'em sock'em cavalry fight because toward the end of that engagement, uh, two of Stuart's brigades, uh, with Wade Hampton um, uh, leading them, uh, and Fitzhugh Lee, I believe, as well, uh, came out to, to try to, to break through the uh, center of the Union cavalry with, with a shock, a charge, and uh, Custer only had one formed regiment to meet them, the, fi- uh, the first, his vet- veteran regiment, and he led 500. Uh, uh, Wolverines, as he called them, smack dab into the middle of this this column of 2,000 Confederates, which got hit just before his impact with some blasts from Union artillery and also some other Union commands on the field mounted and, and attacked the flanks. But they talk about uh, horses getting bowled over, finding uh, at least uh, a pair of combatants impaled on each other's sabers, um, uh, some Union squadrons hit the flanks, cutting their way through the Confederate column and cutting their way back. Uh, so that sometimes happened, but often with these charges, you get the impression that that uh, uh, some units would falter before the impact, which would give the advantage to whoever didn't falter, and uh, or they just kind of with like bayonet charges, uh, one side would kind of melt away <laughs> before mm-hmm. before contact was made. So it was a matter of of whoever maintained their morale would end up sweeping sweeping the field. Or if, if you, you're able to hit the enemy at a flank or something like that, you could drive a charge home. That makes a lot of sense that, that, that people wouldn't stand. I, I was once walking across the Perryville battlefield, and uh, there was private land, and a, a horse... Uh, horses were, were corralled on, on someone's property, and, and I looked up, and four horses were galloping at me on the mm-hmm. other side of a fence. There was a fence that they couldn't get to me, uh, but they were 50 yards away and coming at full speed, and I didn't want to count on that fence to hold them back. Did you feel uh, the I, ground shaking? I, I, yeah, it was, yeah, it was terrifying. Only four horses. I once had one horse break out of a reenactment, got spooked by, by a volley, and, and it came barreling toward me. And yeah, <laughs> you know, they, the, when they, a, they swerved before they got to the fence, but I was not waiting to find out. I, I was, was able I to was jump behind a tree away. and the thing flew past. But that that is terrifying. And the mm-hmm. idea of, uh, you know, maintaining a line with the cavalry coming at you, which infantry sometimes did. Mm-hmm. But, but, but it could it could be unnerving, especially if it wasn't something you expected or, or you'd lost your alignment. Uh, and Custer had a uh, he developed a gift. Uh, for um, finding ways to turn Confederate infantry. He'll do that at, at the Battle of Winchester in September 1864. And during Sheridan's uh, counterattack at, at, at uh, Cedar Creek, he'll spot a, a gap in the Confederate line and charge through with his 3rd Cavalry Division, which will help to, to um, get Early's army to rout. Um, so he, uh, he, he, was, he was a great athlete at West Point, and he was also a great hazer. He knew how to take people by surprise with all these pranks for which uh, uh, West Point is famous. And I think those qualities translated well into his, uh, into his career as a, as a cavalryman, at least during the Civil War. He could move quick. He had a way of spotting an opportunity, and he had the nerve, he had the nerve to, uh, to exploit that. And, and early on, he was able to win the devotion of his men. So when he said charged, they tended to do that. They tended to follow him. I wonder if that 
uh, you know, you read of the magnetism of the charge, the the, uh, the, the whole cavalry obsession. I mean, that, that's the, the pinnacle of the cavalryman's life. Uh, if, if that explains in some small way what happened uh, at Little Bighorn, that, that the idea that his, his unit, however small it was, was anything less than invincible. If they were going to charge, uh, who would stop them? Well, there's no doubt he he was aggressive at Little Bighorn. Uh, uh, since the archaeological studies have been done and, and people have been able to better interpret the Indian accounts, it, you know, it looks like uh, he was he kept trying to push his enemies, hoping he could reunite his regiment. I mean, he, he did realize he was up against strong odds, but but I think he felt if I if I don't press them, that will allow them to strike me at their leisure. Uh, but uh, maybe if he had forded up a little earlier and he had kept his five companies uh, together, uh, if he hadn't tried to do too much with too little, he might have ended up uh, at least being able to salvage a, 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 a portion of, of, of uh, his personal his personal command, those, those five companies uh, that, that followed him uh, to Medicine Tail Cooley. But we'll never know for sure. We'll never know for sure. I'll have to ask him if I ever meet him. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of one of those questions you want to to know one day. Yeah. The uh, an interesting point about the archaeology too that that has uh, affected what we know of that battle. And uh, talking to our, our mutual friend Larry Babbitts, who was an archaeologist by trade, uh, but has written extensively on the revolution. Uh, uh, well, actually, we had Josh Howard on a few weeks ago, uh, Larry's co-author, and oh, talking about how battlefield okay. archaeology uh, affects things. So uh, it seems there's a, there's a whole range of tools, uh, living history and archaeology and other things we can use besides traditional documentary research. It, it always pays to be open to new approaches uh, because they they help us to see further, and that's that's part of the part of the, the quest, isn't it? Now, since you wrote about Custer, you've written about things like Wake Island, uh, the U.S. Marines in World War II. Another uh, last stand. <laughs> uh, that's true, another uh, like, like Custer, although they didn't go looking for trouble in quite no. the same way. No, it came to them. Right. Uh, what, what are you working on now? Well, I'm, I'm uh, doing a book uh, uh, on the American uh, Revolution. I'm trying to do a social history of Cornwallis's 1781 Virginia campaign, so I'm trying to resurrect uh, the reputation of another uh, general who's remembered as a failure uh, and explain how he was able to pretty much paralyze the largest, most populous, and richest state uh, among the uh, 13 United States back in 1781 without having to fight a major battle. He, um, in some ways, uh, uh, did what the Union Army would later do. He went after uh, the property of his enemies, and he also freed their slaves. And uh, until he was ordered into the trap at Yorktown, he was pretty much able to go anywhere he wanted to. I mean, he could send a, a column of less than 200 men 70 miles uh, uh, riding uh, to almost capture Thomas Jefferson uh, without getting mauled. I mean, the big hero in that episode is the guy who got to Monticello ahead of them to tell Jefferson to run away uh, when the British sent uh, 800 troops uh, into the Massachusetts countryside 500 years earlier to, to practice gun control at Concord, they almost got wiped out by the Massachusetts militia. So it's, uh, I think uh, it helps us to uh, uh, remember that the, the American victory in the Revolution was not inevitable. It was a very near-run thing. Uh, we were lucky to win in the end, and it also points to the uh, fragility of a slaveholder's rebellion, which again is a is a theme that that uh, uh, resurfaces during the Civil War too. Well, the the Civil War South was not 
shy about making the connection to the revolution and what they they saw themselves doing, both both ideologically and militarily. Uh, they they didn't have the same uh, outcome, obviously, but, yeah. but they certainly the North, thought the North, they were. The North had a romanticized view of the revolution too, and it felt it was standing up for the uh, the spirit of '76 and trying to preserve what the founders had created with the the revolution and the constitution. So that's another another thing that that uh, federals and, and Confederates had in common <laughs> for you know. Uh, they're each fighting for the same legacy, but they define it differently. Right. right. Now, with the subsequent centennial upon us, uh, you know, I, I think that the idea of what the North was fighting for is an interesting theme that seems to be coming up a lot. Gary Gallagher has written about it. Others. Um, it, it's not hard to make students understand uh, fighting for freedom or independence or uh, against uh, evil federal government or even even to protect property in the form of slaves. But it's hard to get people to recognize the passion uh, Northerners felt about the Union. Is that maybe one of the things that, that might come out of the next uh, four years, getting getting people to see that angle more clearly. Well, well, we need to uh, we need to do that. We we, we want to avoid a good guy, uh, bad guy uh, kind of construct. But the South was fighting for slavery, so automatically the North was fighting against it, and that we we both know that's that's not uh, that's not accurate. But this right. the power that this abstraction had in the minds of uh, so many uh, people in the North that, that they were willing to lay down their lives and make other sacrifices to, to preserve uh, what they called the Union. Um, that, that, is, that is a mystery that uh, uh, requires uh, further ex- examination and deeper, deeper consideration of the power that that, that idea had. Um, and uh, so I hope, yeah, I hope uh, that, that, that we can uh, come up with a, a better appreciation for that uh, by uh, 20, 2015. Um, you know, I, I try to, 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 I just taught my Civil War and Reconstruction class this spring, and I, 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 I uh, although I'm not a Tea Party sympathizer, I say, you know, these are people who believe in certain principles. You know, they, they articulate them, and they work very hard uh, for that. And I, and I say, you know, the, the, when you think of it, these are, these, are, these are abstractions. These are words. But words have power, and they can command loyalty. And I, I feel that, that that same kind of impulse was operant during the Civil War, not just north of the Mason-Dixon line either, though. I mean, the Confederates, they, they uh, certainly uh, uh, expressed uh, their cause in uh, high-sounding language and in terms of principle, too. And, and the willingness of both sides to, uh, to fight, and, and I guess the, the unwillingness of either side to realize the other was in, in equal earnest, uh, Certainly led to tragedy there. Well, you, you, uh, you can't have a war unless you demonize your enemy. Exactly. <laughs> it's kind of hard well, to kill people you like. Our tragedy today is that we've run out of time, uh, as always happens uh, on Civil War Talk Radio, uh, earlier than I would like. But, uh, Greg, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, my deepest pleasure. And listeners, you'll want to uh, find a copy of Custer Victorious for a fascinating read. And thank you, as always, for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network.